Okay, so this morning, the title of this morning's speech is The Divine Design. So I'm going to be talking about the tabernacle. Um, so we are going to be delving into the Old Testament. <gasps> Old Testament, what? The Old Testament before Jesus? Yes. But no, as you will see. So, in the book of Exodus, we find the people of God roaming in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. During this time, the people experience many ups and downs. And yet they experience God in a very tangible way, through pillars of fire or cloud, and in a tent structure that God himself prescribed in great detail to be his mobile temple called the tabernacle. And that's it behind me. Uh, tabernacle is such a good word to say. Tabernacle. I love that word. Tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacle. It's just fun, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> So, aside from the fact that I love saying the word tabernacle, uh, the reason we're going to spend some time focusing on this particular aspect of God's relationship to his people is that it provides a rich metaphor for how we as Christians are to walk with and relate to our infinitely awesome God through Jesus. But before we get into the detail of the tabernacle, let's take a brief look at the Exodus story as a whole, so that we can better understand the context of the tabernacle. So, we start with God's people as slaves in Egypt, being used and abused by the Pharaoh in labour camps, viewed as an inferior race, and treated with a harsh contempt. Then Moses comes along, demands the release of God's people from slavery, and after boils, frogs, rivers of blood, etc., etc., Pharaoh agrees to set them free. Now, you'll have to forgive me. I've got to go through this quite quickly because I've got a lot to cover this morning and I don't want to keep you all day. Um, so, God's judgment passes through Egypt, but his people are covered when they paint the blood of a sacrifice lamb over their doors as instructed by God. Then the judgment of God passes over them. Freed from slavery, they then leave Egypt, pursued by Pharaoh, who has changed his mind again at that point, but they miraculously escape by passing through the parted waters of the Red Sea, which then closed behind them, wiping out the pursuing enemy force. They then spend 40 years in the desert, following God's presence in the form of a pillar of either fire or cloud, making a lot of silly mistakes, living through the miraculous provision of both food and water from God before entering the promised land and receiving the inheritance promised by God. <sighs> This is a literal and historical event. It is also widely accepted by biblical scholars that the events of the Exodus story were shaped by God in such a way that it gives us a pattern for our salvation and walk with God. You see, we too were born as slaves to a master that seeks only to cause us pain and separate us from our inheritance. We were born into sin. Much like the people of God in Egypt, we are the right people born into a situation where we were working under the wrong king. But the good news is that God has also given us a way to escape his righteous judgment. Like the Israelites, we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, so that the judgment of God passes over us and we are redeemed from our slavery to sin. And as the children of God went down through the waters of the Red Sea and came out the other side into freedom, leaving their enemy to be crushed and drowned by the collapsing walls of water, we too pass through the purifying water of baptism, leaving our sinful nature dead in the water as we rise out of it, a new creation, through identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen to that. Now, most of us in this room have been through this process. We've got to that point where many of us have been born again, been baptised. This brings us on to the next phase, which I'm going to talk about today, which is sanctification. Sanctification. Now, the, the freed people of Egypt needed to relearn what God really was, or who God really was, and how he made them to relate to him in a way that was for their good and his glory. For their good and his glory. It was a long and bumpy process filled with mistakes and idolatry. You see, getting the people out of Egypt was one night of God's deliverance. Getting Egypt out of the hearts of the people took a generation in the wilderness. This is true for us. As a Christian, I stand before you today a free man who is saved from the grip of sin and hell. Yet I still struggle with sin on a daily basis. But in my walk with God, I strive for a deeper relationship with him. That is for my good and his glory through the grace afforded by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or to put it another way, despite my complete inadequacy, through grace, I am afforded God's riches at Christ's expense. We continue to strive towards sanctification. Not that it's something that we could ever dream of achieving ourselves, but in complete surrender to God and the honest pursuit of his presence it's only through that that we are able to approach the living God through Jesus and claim our inheritance in heaven as the children of God claim their inheritance in the promised land. Now I could stop the preach right there, but there is more. So, why is the tabernacle so significant? When we look in Exodus, we see that God dictated the design and layout of the tabernacle in excruciating detail over six chapters. Now to put that into context, the creation of the whole world was covered in one. So we know for a fact that this is something that is very important. And that alone makes it worthy of our attention. But when we begin to understand the significance of its design as a pattern for relating to God and a foreshadowing of Jesus, it becomes a true thing of beauty. The function of the tabernacle was primarily about God being centrally present among his people. So God being right in the middle of everything. It was at the centre of the encampment. It wasn't somewhere that the Israelites went to, to kind of visit before they came back to the camp. It was right in the middle. It was the focus of the community. The structure of the tabernacle was designed to be folded and carried with them as they moved into a season of advance. They carried it into war. Wherever they moved, the presence of God went before them and the provision of God went with them. And when they arrived wherever God had led them, the tabernacle was rebuilt and all the tents in the encampment were built facing the tabernacle. Now this would have been strange to anyone else, any other tent-dwelling people at the time, because normal practice would always be to pitch your tent with your back to the wind so you didn't get sand blown into your tent. Which would have been no small 
thing. Uh, you know, a gale blowing sand into your tent is never going to be comfortable. But because of their dedic- dedication to God and keeping him central in the camp, it meant that no matter which way the wind was blowing, someone would end up with the wind blowing sand in their tent. Now this is a small but significant price to pay for keeping God at the centre of their camp, but it's also something I can personally identify with. There is often a cost to keeping your focus on the presence of God. But let's not forget, the Bible is pretty clear about the fact that hardship will come when we walk with Christ. And that our comfort is not so important that it should ever divert our attention away from God. Now, because all the tents were facing the tabernacle, and there was only one, it unified the people that comprised the 12 tribes, excuse me, that comprised the 12 tribes of Israel. Estimates are that it could be up to 1.2 million people, just for context there. As a central dwelling place for God among them. Now, imagine everyone in Chester, or whatever town you're from, waking up in the morning, wiping the sleep off your eyes, stepping out your front door, and right in front of you is a massive pillar of fire. And you turn to your left, you turn to your right, all your neighbours are all doing the same thing. Everyone is looking at the same thing. Again, when we focus on Christ, it unites us. Not just within this church, the church generally. So, this was the same fire, this pillar of fire, the same fire that Moses had seen in the burning bush, where God had told him to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground. So that fire signifying the presence of God meant that the ground beneath it was indeed holy. And because the ground ground was holy, it was God who sets the conditions under which we can approach him. It's the ground of his sovereignty, not ours. It's not that any specific patch of ground was in itself holy, but the very fact that God was present there made it holy ground. So, let's take a look at the various elements of the tabernacle. We have... Here we go. That's the floor plan of the tabernacle. So, first off is the courtyard, which is is the, the larger area around the holy place in the Holy of Holies. So, the courtyard was about 150 foot long by 75 foot wide, The wall around it was seven and a half feet tall, so it was fairly large. Um, On the east side of the courtyard, there was a gate made from blue, purple, and scarlet-coloured linen veil. These were royal colours. So you can imagine how vibrant that looked against the the backdrop of the desert. But these were royal colours signifying the majesty of God. This gate is where the children of God would bring their sacrifices and offerings to the priests, And it was the first of a number of barriers separating the presence of God from the people of Israel. Not because God was some kind of aloof hermit who didn't want people coming near him, but in order to protect the people from certain death that would come with entering God's presence in an unfit state. Once we're through the gate, the next thing we see is the altar 
of burnt offerings, the bronze altar. So once the priest had received and approved the offering from the children of Israel, the worshipper would lift it onto the bronze altar, which again was about almost eight foot square, so it's a large altar. Then the priest would lay his hands on the animal's head before killing it, catching its blood as it was killed. The priest would then sprinkle blood all around the altar before pouring the rest underneath. He would then clean and divide the animal before burning it, and as the smoke from the offering rose, God accepted this sacrifice as a way of atoning for the sin of the worshipper. This is as far as any Israelite, any common Israelite, would be allowed to go into the tabernacle. Next, the priests alone would be able to go into the holy place. The holy place was a place of worship and service to God. Only the priests could enter this area and only once they had washed themselves in the bronze laver. The bronze laver was about 15 feet tall, filled with water for ceremonial cleansing. Priests would wash their hands and feet in it before entering the holy place. This was an act signifying sanctification or becoming more holy. This was an act signifying... Uh, yeah, just read that. <laughs> in order to serve God, the priests, and indeed we don't just need to be forgiven of our sin, but must continually strive for holiness. Not apart from God, but through submission to God. Once inside the holy place, there were three important objects. Firstly, the golden lampstand. Second, the table of showbread. Thirdly, the altar of incense. The golden lampstand was made from a single piece of gold Rather than pieced together, the golden lampstand looks like it should probably hold candles, but in fact, it was fueled by oil. The priests would make sure that there was enough oil in the lamps and that the wicks were trimmed so that it would always burn brightly and illuminate the holy place. This is a symbol of, God illuminating of God's illuminating truth and a prophetic announcement of Jesus being light of the world. Next, the table of showbread. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest in the tabernacle. There were others after him. Um, Aaron and his sons would place 12 loaves of bread on this altar. These 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel and served as a constant reminder of God's miraculous provision during their time in the wilderness. These loaves would be replaced weekly. Again, as a reminder of God's constant provision. God didn't just provide once and then the bread just rotted away. He continued to provide. Next is the altar of incense. The altar of incense would be burning a special mixture of spices that were only used in the tabernacle. This is significant because as the smoke of the incense rose from the altar, it was representative of our prayers raising up towards heaven and God greeting our prayers like a sweet smell that pleases him. This is also significant that the altar was directly in front of the entrance to the Holy of Holies. Again, this is a symbolic reminder that we must always approach God in prayer. Then we come to the Holy of Holies, also known as the Most Holy Place. We have there a picture of, of the high priest. 
Uh, well, we may touch on that again shortly. Um, but also known as the holy place, this room separated the holy... Sorry, also known as the most holy place, this room separated the holy place with a thick veil, um, and it housed the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant and the mercy seat, and was the place where the presence of God rested. And as such, it was off-limits to everyone but the high priest. And even he could only enter once a year for a special celebration called the Day of Atonement. During that time, the room would be filled with a cloud of incense so he could not look directly at the presence of God. Anyone else who attempted to enter the Holy of Holies would not survive an encounter with the uncompromising perfection of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the central focus of the most holy place. This box, overlaid with gold, held the tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments as written in God, by God's own hands and given to Moses as a reminder of God's holy law. It also contained a jar of manna, which is the bread that came down from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness. Again, as another reminder of God's constant provision. It also contained Aaron's rod, or staff, which marked him as God's chosen intercessor for the people of God until Jesus came as the high, great high priest to intercede for all mankind once and for all. The ark was the ultimate symbol of God's manifest presence among his people. On top of the ark was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was an ornate lid for the ark, featuring two cherubim at each end with their wings stretched out forward toward each other and their heads bowed. The mercy seat was the ultimate place to appeal for God's mercy and forgiveness. During the Day of Atonement, which is that one time a year when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and intercede on behalf of the children of God. The mercy seat being placed on top of the ark was symbolic of the fact that God's mercy and atoning blood would cover and overshadow the law. Okay, Dave, so what's this got to do with my life and where exactly is Jesus in all this? Let's take a look. I know I've, I've thrown a lot of information at you. Here we go. So, the bronze altar is where sacrifice was made to atone for sin. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. In 1 Peter 1.19, we see it says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So it's describing Jesus as that precious lamb that was slain to once and for all atone for our sin. Through that, we have been granted forgiveness. The bronze laver, Jesus cleanses us. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And through that, we are made pure. The golden lampstand, Jesus, the light of the world. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
allowing us to walk in truth. There's a saying, I can't remember who it's from, but I'm going to say it anyway. So don't, don't give me credit for this one. That the, the nighttime has a thousand eyes, but the day only has one. So in the ignorance of midnight, there are thousands of lights in the sky. There are thousands of directions you can take, but not one of them truly illuminates your life. Whereas in the noon day sun, there is one star that lights everything. I think you probably get the metaphor. Do I need to explain it? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Next, the table of showbread. Jesus, the bread of life. John 6.35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is our sustainer. The altar of incense. Jesus is our intercessor. In Romans 8.34, it says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Interceding means pleading with God on our behalf. That God will hear our prayers. The Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is God's presence. John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He came down to earth to presence himself physically. Jesus was the presence of God. Literally there. Not just some abstract pillar of fire, but the God the real God come down that we can touch and that can speak and that can that can show us how life should be done. Then the mercy seat. Jesus, our reconciliation. John 14, 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through Jesus, we are reconciled with our Father God in a way that would not be possible otherwise. So looking at the pattern that God has laid out for us, I want to question for you, put a question to you now. Which way is your tent pitched? Is it towards the presence of God or to the things of this world? Are you chasing the pillar of fire that is God's presence or are you focused on the sand blowing into your tent? Devotion to God has always demanded commitment. The work of the cross was not a casual thing, and neither is the call to take up your own cross. It's only when we take that call seriously, when we keep the presence of God at the centre of our lives, when we approach under the covering of Jesus' blood, when we strive for sanctification in the light of God's truth, with thanksgiving and prayer, that we can enter the fullness of his glory and partake in his incredible mercy and really know the living God. Thank you, Jesus, for leading the way.
Amen.